Hi, welcome to Wade the Elephant, our uh, podcast. I'm Garrett. And I'm Kier. Who's Wade? Is that the junk guy that got his hand caught in the ceiling fan? Uh, no, Garrett. Actually, Wade is an acronym. W-A-Y-D. And what that stands for is, what are you doing? And the elephant is actually short for the elephant in the room. That sounds complicated. It's not. I can see how you'd think so. <laughs> uh, really what this podcast is going to focus on is we're going to focus on what are you doing and how are the things that you're choosing to do affecting your life? Because the things that you do, the choices you make are in any given situation, the elephant in the room. So we just shorten it up to Wade the elephant. But again, Wade, W-A-Y-D is an acronym for what are you doing? So Garrett, what are you doing? <laughs> I love this. And for me, it really speaks to personal accountability, recognizing how our actions affect our life. At the end of the day, I spent a large part of my life blaming others and outside situations for the situations that I was in and not recognizing that I am directly responsible for the conditions of the life that I live as an adult. Well, I'm glad to see that you've grown up because I've witnessed that blaming others from you. And I would be remiss to say that I've done it myself. Seven trips to prison will either make you better or bitter. I'm thankful that uh, trip number seven made me better. So. It's about damn time. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in, uh, in the what are you doing uh, elephant in the room mindset. At the end of the day, looking back, I created a lot of hell for myself in my life, and I amplified it by blaming people around me. As my consequences fell on my head, for some reason, I couldn't put cause and effect together, and I ended up harming myself and everybody around me that loved me over and over because I didn't see what I was doing. Well, I don't think it's something that is uncommon. I think a lot of times people take the path of least resistance, and it's easier to look outward than it is to look inward. Yeah. Um, so being able to look and see, you know, what are you doing about a situation? An example I kind of gave uh, or would give would be, you know, a guy says, yeah, my boss was bitching me out at work today, and you know, I had such a rough day at work because he was totally tearing me a new one. Went out to the bars, decided to throw a couple down, and uh, had maybe one too many. And then I got in my car, probably shouldn't have done that, but decided, you know, I'm all right. I can drive home. And next thing you know, he's complaining that he's got his third DWI. Now, it's easy, and I've known many people who will just be like, oh, yeah, because of my boss and all this stuff happened. But what are you doing? What was he doing in that situation? Well, he was the one that chose to go to the bar, yeah. whether right or wrong. He had too many, and then he was the one who chose to get in his car and try and drive. So the boss yelling at him was something that happened, but his choices are what ultimately led to that third DWI. It wasn't the yeah. boss. It's like, so if your boss uh, one of the, got upset with you, you might not have had that situation play out that day but it's almost as if i was looking for a reason to go to the bar and have too many and that was just the 
perfect impetus for me to say, nope, that's it. Yeah, that asshole boss of mine. Here we go. It's ironic that you bring that story up because uh, prisons full of inmates have been going through their PMDIs, although served in 56 to 48 months. Some have seen served all the way up to 72 months in prison, uh, depending on their criminal history. And anytime you ask, and not just DWX, when you ask somebody what they're in prison for, over 80% of the time, you're going to hear a story about what somebody else did. I've heard a lot of DWI offenders talk about how ridiculous this uh, mad panel is and how the legislatures have uh, overdone it with these laws and how they shouldn't be in prison because uh, the only reason they're in prison is because some lady uh, who lost her son in a drunk driving accident got a bunch of money together and invested it into these ridiculous laws and and, and how the, the founder of MAD got a DWI herself one day, as if that negates the legitimacy of all of the people that have lost their lives because somebody chose to drink too much. So I think that's, an, that, that's a very fitting story, because um, throughout my life, I can remember the first time I ever went to prison, <clears throat> I was convicted of felon in possession of a firearm. And to give you a little bit of context to that, I had my grandfather's 410 shotgun in the closet of my apartment. And I spent 40 months, over three years of my life, walking around in prison telling people that I was in prison for possession of a family heirloom. It's like it was a brooch or my grandma's watch or something. I literally walked around and now I look back and I'm like, there had to have been some people in that prison that didn't want to tell me the truth but had to have thought in their head, you're in in prison because you had a firearm. A family heirloom? You know, that just Yeah, when you when you describe it as a family heirloom, you're like, it isn't even capable of firing. It's more yeah. for looks yeah. than anything else. And it was my prized possession that I got handed down to me from my grandfather, and for them to wrong me by accusing me of having a firearm, like I remember that gun. It was a gun. Yeah. It was your grandfather's gun, but it was a perfectly functional firearm yes. that you should not have had in your yes. possession. Oh, and forget about the fact that I was getting large amounts of marijuana and they found, they found like a, a, a Rubbermaid tote with probably 3,000 marijuana seeds, a postal scale, and a 1,000 baggies in the apartment, plus fireworks, alcohol, and everything else. It must have been the heirloom that yeah. really pushed like, we really the camel's back. You got a family heirloom in here that's uh, not approved by the uh, ATF. So. Yeah. But yeah, just looking back now, I recognize, I'm so thankful that I'm not in that place anymore where it's everyone else's fault. Because the problem with blaming everyone else for my actions is that I can't change theirs. But when I started recognizing that when I change my actions, I change my circumstances, uh, what are you doing took on a whole new context for me. Because now, what are you doing is a clarion call for me to recognize what is my part in every situation, in every single scenario that plays out in my life what i've learned is that the difference is how i play my part in it like you said my boss can yell at me today and my response to that is completely different because i recognize that that's the only control that i have in this situation is my response and sometimes it sounds a bit like a cliche but i can tell you after being in prison seven times and feeling completely hopeless this this is the one thing that has truly given me the power to change my life. My, my salvation, my, my belief in God, my higher power, um, really led me to a mindset 
where I recognize that everything changes when I change the way I look at everything. One thing that I had happened to me uh, years ago now, I can't even remember when, but I used to let situations dictate my mood. So if I was driving to work and I got cut off in traffic on my way to work, man, was I pissed off. And I would take that pissed off attitude with me to work or back home if I was on my way home from work. And I would let it, you know, affect me, let it affect my family. And then I got to the point where I was like, what is me being pissed off doing other than affecting me and or affecting those around me, my family or my coworkers? It's not as if that person Whoever cut me off somewhere in the world was all of a sudden like, I've got this horrible headache. Somebody must be upset with me. (laughs) It didn't affect them at all. It affected me. So I had to look at and say, what are you doing? What am I doing? What I was doing is letting actions of others affect me. Now, that doesn't mean that when you get cut off, it's not something that could, you know, make you upset. But I found a way to let it go. And what I would do is I would just say, you know what? I'm just going to create a backstory for that individual. I'm going to say they just got a call that their wife went into labor and they are rushing to the hospital. They just got a call that their grandma who's in hospice care is got, you know, she's on death's door right now. And they got to get there if they want to see her before she goes. So I kind of give them that, even if that's not the case, and then it's yeah. easier for me to just let it go. That's really then good. I don't go to work or go back home and have it be like, oh, yeah, this jerk I, cut me off. Like, no, it was some guy trying to go see his grandma. It was some guy trying to get there before his sure. kid was born. I have a mantra that fits with that. Um, I guess maybe I just simplified it to because I'm really simple. Um, is they need it no matter whether it's the last box of granola bars at the store or they they snatched it up five seconds before me or they got into the turning lane in front of me or they pulled into the gas station and cut me off. Uh, the old me took it as a personal vendetta. In fact, I imagined them laying in their bed at night laughing at me laying in my bed at night. It caused me many nights of lost sleep. But I, I developed this mantra where I just say they must have needed it for me. And uh, it gives me peace. Uh, like you said, when you draw the scenario out to where they're no longer the villain and you're the victim, when, when you can relate to that and you can begin to uh, – see other people as maybe their needs are more important than yours at the moment or more dire. Uh, it changes the way that you treat people, react to people, and honestly, then changes the way that you treat yourself. And, you know, coming from the background that we both have of having substance abuse issues and addiction and things like that, I can tell you I've had times where my mindset is still there, even though I haven't used in a long time, my mindset will be when I'm opening the freezer and I see that there's only one purple popsicle left. It's me. I better grab that. I want to get that quick before somebody else grabs it. Instead of reminding myself, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, your daughter, your five-year-old daughter also likes the purple ones. My addicted mindset (laughs) is like, I better get that before somebody else does. Instead of, you know what? There's only one left. Let's make sure that Keely gets it. And I love the way you put that too. Somebody else. As if it's, I better get that. Because if you were to say out of your mouth, I'm going to get that before that five-year-old kid of mine gets it, you realize what you sound like. But when you when you turn it around and you say, I better grab it before somebody else does, that's that, a, that's that um, self-centered, addictive mindset that we'll probably battle the rest of our lives. And we can make progress. But the fact is, I, I catch myself at times um, – completely self-centered 
and I have to and I have to check that mentality. But to be honest, there's times when I'm ashamed of how long I allowed myself to sit in that mindset, where I've where I've had a situation during the day. You know, I can say this: I'm thankful that it's been a very long time since I've had a bad day. Years, but that's only because of the change in mindset. I can remember times that I keep going back to my prison references, but it's because where it's where I spent most of my adult life. And I can remember when I was younger, waking up and having something negative happen, and letting it just ruin the rest of my day. The rest of my day, I was just in kind of a crappy mood, and everything that happened, kind of it just went back to that. And now. I can't remember the last time I allowed an entire day. I lost my grandmother six weeks to the day before I walked out of prison this time. And it was a really tough situation. I got the phone call and I didn't understand the circumstances. Um, but it didn't even, I can say that it didn't even ruin my day. That it was a tough, um, probably an hour, where I went in my room and I, and I grieved. And there was periods throughout the day where emotionally it would hit me. And I was like, man, I'm not going to be able to give her. For three years, I prayed that I'd be able to get out and give her one last hug and, and say, tell her I loved her in person. And it was tough. But I can't even say that it ruined my day because, uh, because I wouldn't let it. Because there was too many good things that were happening in that 24-hour period. I mean, it also helped to know that in six weeks I'm going home. I've been in here for three years and I'm about to go home. Um, it also helped that I have a relationship with my creator where I can trust his character when I can't trust my circumstances. But um, I haven't had a bad day and I can't remember how long because um, this mindset doesn't allow for an entire day to be ruined by any actions. And even when you do let yourself get upset, like you said, it was a rough time. Obviously, your grandma died. You can let yourself grieve. You can let yourself realize, hey, you know what? This sucks that I'm not yeah. going to be out to go to this. But you also weren't going around just being like, I'm going to be pissed off at every CO in here. I'm yeah. going to be pissed off at everyone because, you know what? You're the reason I'm not going to be able to be there for my grandma's funeral. You're like, no, you're the reason. <laughs> what are yes. you doing? You're the one that got yourself put in there. They're just doing their job. They're not like, oh, actually, you're supposed to get out of it, too, but we're holding you in here. When I right? recognized that I was suffering the natural consequences for my actions, nobody was a victim, not even myself. I wasn't a victim of my actions. Uh, you could put it that way, but the way I saw it was I was just suffering the natural consequences of willfully doing, I was, when I was arrested, I was wanted in seven counties in two states for over 13 felonies. There was, there is a natural consequence to that kind of misbehavior. When you received your sentencing, you can't be upset and be like, well, they didn't explain to me that when I was going away for how many months was it? Uh, uh 52, I had to do 35. 35 months when I was going to go to 52, 35 to 52 months that I was going to wait. They didn't explain that I might be missing birthdays <laughs> and I might be missing friends' weddings. That was implied. Yeah. So for it to come to the realization like, yeah, this is one of those things that was implied in it happened. Yeah. I have to own that. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And then ultimately, we often in our lives allow ourselves to become the victim. 
And we might not realize it offhand, but when you play the victim, you allow yourself no room for growth, no room for change, because you're in a helpless position and things are happening to you. And that's a horrible place to be. It's the same theory as when you live on somebody else's couch, because what you're doing is you're living at the mercy of someone else. So your life is dependent on their mercy. And if in that day they don't feel merciful, now you're a victim to their, to their, they're, they're, they're treating you unjustly. Well, the fact is they owe you nothing. You're an adult living on their couch because you're irresponsible. And when they've had enough of that and they, and they treat you like crap one day because they came home from work and you didn't even clean up the house. I used to look at that and I used to say, like, you know, I used to have that mentality that the world owed me something, that I'm the victim in every situation. And I was more miserable than I could have ever. I didn't have to work hard. Yeah, life was easy in those ways, but emotionally it was hard because I had no idea of cause and effect. And I got spanked as a kid. I guess when my mom quit doing that, I stopped learning or something because I can remember as a little kid understanding that if I do this, this happens. And at some point as a teenager, maybe in my drug-induced stupidity, I kind of lost track of that and just started into this victim mindset of things were happening to me. And I wasn't, like you said, what are you doing? I wasn't taking into account how my actions were affecting my life, my situation, and other people's lives. So Again, the name of the podcast, What Are You Doing? The Elephant in the Room, or Wade the Elephant. And the reason we came up with this is because the elephant in the room in any situation you're in is what is your choice of how you're going to handle it? What are you going to do next? Are you going to play the victim? Are you going to own up to what is implied as a natural consequence? If you're going to be locked up, it's implied you're going to miss some stuff. Yeah, you're not going to be there. Yeah. Uh, and like you said, you know, growing up, you you knew cause and effect. You were spanked as a child. I was spanked as a child. A I know what it was like. Thanks, mom. Remind me again of the story of your mom the one time that you thought you got away with it. And then it was when you got back home. And oh, she... yeah. See, my mom had a policy, right? She would never spank you in public or in front of other people because she said that's humiliating and it's shaming your child. And she would never spank out of anger. So what she would do is she would calm down. The, the problem with that is as a child, you think that if it didn't happen right away, that everything was good. And I can remember one time in particular, we went to a store, and I threw a fit. I uh, I showed my behind at the store. Like, I, I blew up. And I remember her grabbing me by the arm, and our shopping trip was over. We got to the car. We got in, and I thought I was going to get whooped when we got to the car. And when we didn't get whooped, we got in the car. Mom turned on music. And it was four of us kids. So she's being civil, polite. Um, I should have read the warning signs, you know. Uh, I don't think she was singing uh, gospel songs on the way home like she usually did. I'm sure she was probably a little bit more in prayer for what she was going to do to me. Um, long story short, we get home. I'm playing around. And mom says, Garrett, uh, come to your room real quick. And red, you know, like a red flag went off. And I was like, my room? Why? Oh, okay. And I'm thinking maybe there's a mess in there that I need to clean up. And we walk in. And I realized, like, no, my room is clean. And, like, a light wave of panic starts to come over me, like, oh, no, uh, mom wants to talk to me in my room. And she shuts the door, and she's like, have a seat. And mom never invites me to have a seat on my bed, and this is just awkward. So I remember sitting down, and she said, you know, I love you, right? 
<laughs> and uh, sorry. Yeah, those words right there <laughs> let me know that I that it it's worse than I thought. Here comes the reckoning. And my mom had this way where she would calm herself so that it wasn't done out of anger. But for me, it came out as just cold and callous. Like I imagine a serial killer tying a person down and like flashing a scalpel in front of him and being like, "No, it's gonna be okay. Uh, Everything's okay." You know, I, I don't know if you know this, but I really hate it when people cut me off in traffic. And this morning, you might not have realized it, but you took a left-hand turn in a right-hand lane and almost caused me to crash. And uh, I just have you sitting here. Now that I have your full attention, I'd like to speak to you. That's how it came across <laughs> that my mom was a cold-blooded psychopath <laughs> who could beat me without any, you know, my mom never beat me. But so we're sitting in there and she says, um, your behavior at the grocery store was completely unacceptable. And she put her hand out in that uh, where they show you like how tall something is, like the grass would be this tall. And then she took her other hand and said, I need your behavior up here. And she drew a a, a picture with her hands, uh, like flashing horizontally as to where my behavior was and a much higher hand as to where it needed to be. And then she said, and this is how we're gonna fix it. And she clapped her hands together. And she then calmly proceeded to tell me, okay, now, Roll over. I'm going to give you a spanking. And as she came towards me, my natural reaction was to say, no, and tense up. And she grabbed me, and under her breath, she said with she, – I could tell she was trying to control some rage. And she said, you do not want to fight me right now. This will be so much worse if you don't go along with this. And, like, the seethingness of the way that she said it. I like it was everything in me that wanted to fight, but I just I she had to do it, but I didn't fight her. But she had to pick my weight up and roll me over onto my stomach to whoop me. And uh, yeah, looking back now, uh, I'm thankful that my mom taught me those lessons. But she, I would have rather she just snatched me up and spanked me a few times because that was too methodical. I felt like I was in an episode of Criminal Minds or something. Now we want to make sure that anyone listening to this understands that Garrett, how old are you? I'm 39. And so the time that this happened was... I was 17. Things that... <laughs> <laughs> I was like eight, uh, eight, nine years old. So it was a different world. You know, a lot of kids yeah. that I grew up with at that age, you'd get a spanking, you know. We're not advocating saying, My like, things hated... need to be that way again or it should no. be. And, and you would need to know that My mom hated spanking us. It was her last resort. She absolutely hated doing that. I was, only the, I was the only one that really got a lot of spankings from her. My other siblings' personalities, she could reason with them. She could – I I needed it. And um, I will say this, that I never once felt abused. I never felt afraid of my mom. I, I have no uh, resentments. I love my mom very much, and, I, and in no way do I feel like I ever got a spanking that I didn't deserve. Your mom is truly the salt of the earth. Uh, again, to anyone listening to this, she is the most wonderful woman. At one point, she took me in when I was not asking myself, what are you doing? I was making stupid decisions. I got to the point where I was homeless. I was sleeping on the streets where my parents that lived in the same town had said, you know, if you're going to make these decisions, then you're going to live with those consequences. You're not going to just stay here. I was, how old was I? 
You're 21 or 22. Mm-hmm. And I remember that you were living. You I think I was older than that. I might have been 25. 20, I think no, I was 20. Anyways, I should have been grown up by that yes. point, And I wasn't. And I was making stupid decisions that my parents were going to be like, well, you're an adult. If you're going to live your life like that, deal with the consequences. If you can't afford rent because you're busy doing drugs and doing what else, well, then you can't afford rent, but you're not staying here. And this is, you know, back when your mom was working overnight shifts and I would stay over at your place because she'd be gone all night. And I remember distinctly, wasn't it one night she said, uh, well, this is the thing. She was no pushover. And she said, sleeping in my house. I don't want anybody staying there. Um, and I don't want that. And she had made it very clear. She didn't want anybody being a freeloader. Yeah. She didn't want somebody taking advantage yeah. of her, the fact that she's gone over yeah. night. And, and uh, the thing was that uh, she was very particular about that. And I remember, just so that we can give some context to our listeners, uh, you were bouncing around between uh, at one point, you were living behind the dumpster between Hardee's and the dumpster until they one of the employees found you. You got up and it ran was away. yeah. The garbage collectors had come to pick up, and I had covered up with some cardboard, and they picked up the cardboard, and I heard them say to somebody else, "Like, there's somebody back here." Yeah. And just as soon as they said that, I had hopped over the brick wall and, and took off to the trees. And when I say that, I don't laugh because I think it's funny that you were in that desperate situation. I laugh at the fact that I don't think that most people that know you today recognize that that's your origin, that, that, that you went through sometimes. Jack, his, here's ex, we won't say her name, I guess I already did, but used to kick him out at random, and he would sleep in a she, sleeping bag between two storage sheds behind the apartment building. She did that, and she was well within her rights to do Absolutely. so, because it was her apartment. Yes. I wasn't contributing to, towards anything. So so we're not vilifying her no. in any way, shape, or form. No. When she got fed up with my shit, it was like, yeah, you need to get out. I didn't have a choice but to get out, yeah. because I couldn't say, hey, I'm paying the bills, yeah. and my name's on <laughs> the lease. Like, like, yeah. give some context. My mother was telling me that nobody could stay over and I didn't have the heart to tell you that you had to go sleep in the... Uh, well, I, re- I remember asking you, I said, dude, does this mean like you can't sleep here tonight? Like, and no, you're just like, no. Nah, we'll get it worked out. So my mom comes upstairs one day and I've went to bed in the other room and in the green room, which was my uh, drug dealing room where I sold all my marijuana... It was the my, hangout room. Yeah, it, was, it, had, it had two couches, an entertainment center, it had a little night, a uh, little end table that was two feet in diameter Probably. tops. Yeah. And what was funny was Kier was sleeping behind the couch. And my mom came upstairs one morning. No, 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 no. I was not behind the couch. I was behind the two foot round end table because in my genius mind, me having a foot and a half of my body sticking out of each side was good yeah. enough to hide. Yeah. And she said she just saw your leg, like your feet. And she was like, she said to herself, this kid is sleeping like he's, he's desperate. And so when I woke up that day, she said, who's up there? And I said, here. And she said, I told you I didn't. And I, I remember telling her, mom, he really doesn't have anywhere to stay. This guy has slept in, you know, slept behind a dumpster. And I could see the hurt on her face when she realized the desperation of the situation. And she said, well. 
I guess I, I'm not going to kick him out of my house, but we're going to have some rules. And she laughs about it today. She says, I made up all these rules and you didn't follow a stake in one of them. But here, would that you would show up to church, that you would do the things that she asked. And she said, she thought to herself, like, he must really need a place. If he's, you know, he shows up to church Sunday morning. She's like, I'd be like, hey, who peed on the floor in the bathroom? And she's like, you literally, with a serious face, turn and be like, here, knock it off. And she's like, I used to feel so bad for him. Because Garrett would just blame him for anything. And, you know, back then I was a habitual line stepper. I love to step over the line. And, oh, yeah. Um, looking back, though, that uh, she she saw a situation where she she didn't have, you know, her faith prevented her from throwing a person into the street and we got jobs and we started working and you uh ended up getting that job in medelia and you were able but to even before feet. that before i got the job in medelia i lost the job that yeah. we all had yeah and she was, still didn't kick me out no. so you and your sister were both working at the job that we all three were working at i got picked up remember that yes. night that's the night that we how yeah. many of us ended up in jail that night three oh, five a lot of us. So much that they took two of us to Mankato because there wasn't enough room at the inn in St. James. So they transported us to Mankato just for holding us. But I had to call in to that job. Actually, I called the prosecutor in yeah. Houston County because I got picked up for not paying child support. Well, we had just started the job, so it hadn't been coming out of my checks yet. Yeah. And I called the prosecutor and said, hey, is there any way I can reschedule this appointment? Nope. I will come and I will explain. I actually just got a job, but if you guys make me come over there, I'm going to probably not have this job anymore. And uh, they said, nope, sorry, there's nothing we can do. You got to come to this court date. And so my next call then was to my employer and saying, hey, I've got to go to this court thing. Um, I know this is really inconvenient. And they just transferred me to the other supervisor and said, well, I'm going to make it real easy for you. You're fired. So yep. then I didn't have a job. And I remember going to that court appointment, and when I got there, that same person that I would talked to on the phone from the prosecutor's office showed up late to court. And then when the judge had asked me, so, Mr. Carstensen, can you explain to us why the, you don't have a job and haven't been paying child support? And I said, well, up until two days ago, I did have a job. Uh, and when I tried calling and talking to the prosecutor, uh, the DA, if I could reschedule this, they told me that I couldn't. I called my employer, and they let me go. And the judge looked at him and said, is that true? And he's like, well, yes, but we felt that. And he was just like, all right, well, we're going to dismiss this. Go get a job and uh, start paying your child support. But then I was stuck over there. But I didn't get back to St. James. And without a job, your mom was still letting me stay there. We'll have her on the show yeah, sometime so and she can talk about it. But, uh, but how have you spent your job that changed your life? And that change has been steady for over 20 years now. Um, and that change has affected every single one of us. Because she was the linchpin. She was the anchor in that change. And I think uh, what are you doing has a lot to do with that change. We've all grown up since then. We've all... Uh, we have all made leaps and bounds in our lives. Well, most of us have made leaps and bounds in our lives since uh, since the, those late '90s, early 2000s in uh, in St. James. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't point out the fact that our faith has a lot to do with uh, our changes. You know, I think you would agree with me. And not to go too far down any road like that, but um, 
What are you doing is founded in the idea of personal responsibility. And I found my personal responsibility um, in correlation with when I found my faith. I, I definitely agree. And I think just the, again, the title, what are you doing? It could come across as very judgmental. Me saying, what are you doing? Right. I'm judging you with my tone in the way that I'm yeah. saying that. But when we're saying, what are you doing? We're really talking about, again, looking at yourself. What are you doing? Something happens to you. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to play the victim? Are you going to walk around and act, oh, poor me, poor me? And if only these external things weren't happening, yeah. I wouldn't have this internal thing going on. You know, you can work on that internal thing despite whatever is happening yes. externally. And I, and I can tell you that if you work on that internal thing, it will change the external circumstances. You will not stay where you're at. You know, um, I think most people that go to couples therapy, what they're going to hear in couples therapy is they're going to be allowed to vent for a while. And then the therapist is going to say something to the effect of, well, we really can't do anything about their attitude. We can't do anything about their actions. What we can do is change our actions. And what most therapists will tell you is that if you change your actions and you do it consistently, one of two things will happen. The other person's actions will change as well because it'll shake things up. Or you will get to a point where you realize that you could do better than what you're doing right now. And you will have the confidence or the uh, self-worth to walk away from the situation. But no therapist will ever say, yeah, let's go work on them. Therapy will always, and it's, and it's Yeah, and no therapist right. will ever be like, sounds like you're doing everything perfectly. Right. <laughs> and uh, we're just going to focus on them. And most of the time, therapy fails because one of the two people refuses the what are you doing. Because really, that's all it is. That's, that's what so much of it is. We're, we're not trying to say uh, therapy. Therapy fails, therefore don't try it. Therapy oh. works for people, but it works when you start to look at what are you doing? Yes. What are you doing with this? What are you doing? Yeah. That's why the classic therapist line is just, and how does that make you feel? Yes. And how does that make you feel? And, and Dr. Phil's famous line, and how's that working out for you? What he's saying is, how are your actions working out in your favor? And if they're not, then whose actions need to change? Yours. Mine. Um, Again, that example that I gave, just a generic example of, oh, so you're saying that if your boss would have not yelled at you, you wouldn't be in that situation. Yeah. How's that working out for you? So we'll get him not to yell at you. Is there anybody else that is doing things externally that is then driving you to drink yeah. and then do the make the poor decisions to get behind the wheel? Was your boss, when he was yelling at you, holding you down and pouring yeah. the vodka down your throat and then forcing you to get in your car as you said, no, 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 I shouldn't do this. I've already got two Deweys. Please don't. No. What are you doing? Prison is full of guys who, when you ask them what they're doing, their, their answer is, my girl called the cops on me. No. You didn't go to jail because your girl called the cops on you. You went to jail because you committed a crime that was reported Maybe it was by your girlfriend. Maybe it was your family. Maybe it was a stranger. The ultimate truth of it is you are not in jail because somebody called the cops. You're in jail because you committed a crime. And uh, it's amazing to me because as I say this, I'm not saying it from a place of judgment. I'm saying it from a place of redemption because for years that was me. That was me. I was the guy who was in prison for the family heirloom. I was the guy that was in prison because 
uh, because the government criminalized marijuana because William Randolph Hearst and the forestry uh, uh, industry was afraid of what hemp could do for people, <laughs> man. Oh. And ultimately, they made weed illegal because it was competing with alcohol in the timber industry. And uh, yeah, I literally would sit behind bars and act like I was a political prisoner that I was only sitting in jail because of William Randolph Hearst and the Bush brothers. <laughs> like, I didn't, you know, I, th I think of that line in Blow, when Johnny Depp gets busted with an RV full of marijuana towards the beginning of the movie, and he goes in and he's like, and the judge is a female, and he's like, look, baby, check this out. The only reason I'm in here is because I took a product that some people say is illegal across the I took a plant. Yeah, yeah, I took a plant across, across an imaginary, imaginary line. line. She said, unfortunately, the plant that you took is a drug, and that line is not imaginary. It's called a state line. And she laid out reality to him. And I think about the fact that I don't agree with either one of them. I don't think a man should be thrown in prison for years for marijuana, personally. But I think that if the law says that, that the man should respect what the law says. If you don't like it, change the law. Don't circumvent it. That's what responsibility exactly. is. Exactly. What are you doing? If you feel that that law is unjust, then what can you do? Just circumvent it? Well, then you have to realize if it's still in place, There's you're going to have to you know, face up to any consequences yes. for circumventing that law. Or – Get involved politically. Do things to get those laws changed. And in the last 20 years, the fact that 11 states have marijuana legal recreation, there are 32, I believe, uh, medicinally, and Washington, D.C. itself has decriminalized, it shows that groups of people that truly disagreed with it got together and practiced, to me, practiced the what are you doing method. What can we do to change this? Yeah, what can we do to change this? This is... You know, I've had this talk before with my, my kids, the older ones, and said to them, you know, you've got to figure out what the game is. And if the game is Monopoly, you can't play Chinese checkers and expect to win. You can't play, you know, Scrabble and expect to win no. if the game is Monopoly. They're going to be like, what are all these little uh, tiles with letters doing on the board? Because I don't know what you're trying to do here. Yeah. That's not the game that's being played. So if the game is these are the rules that are in place and you want to push for legalization recreationally, medicinally, the groups have done that. You can see that change happening in our country yes. now. Now, I am not against that at all. I know that with my issues, yeah. I can't be a guy that could just go no. and do that. I have got too much responsibility, too yes. many things going on. And I know that I still got that little demon on my shoulder who's just whispering in my ear saying like, oh, come on. Why don't you why don't you just take a break? You could, you know, yeah. it's Friday night. It's all right. I've, I've opened that door enough times that I know that it needs to stay shut for me. But I would never infringe on another person's right. If, and this is what I say. I don't ever want to do it again because I have goals in my life that I know that will interrupt. But if you can do it responsibly, just like people that go out every week, weekend, and have a couple of drinks, and it does not affect their life, uh, I don't think that we have the uh, right or the moral high ground to tell them they have to stop simply because there's a population of us out there who can't do it. And the same with marijuana. I think marijuana is personally, I, I'm not, I'm not a pro-marijuana 
dialogue, but I don't think it's, uh, I think it's less harmful than alcohol. I think it is. I think it has less harmful effects. If I were to have a teenage child, I would rather they stay celibate and sober. But realistically, if I were to catch them doing something, I would rather find a joint in their dresser than get a call that they're at a, that they're at a bonfire and they have alcohol poisoning. Regardless of what choices they make, as a parent, the best thing you, you can do is discuss it with them, yeah. not fly off the handle, because that's only going to push them. You'd be like, oh, dad's just a square. Yeah. He doesn't get it. This is just a plant. This is just a plant. Yeah. To sit down and talk to them and, again, ask, what are you doing? What is it that you find in this? Yeah. For the longest time, you and I both know, having to dealt with the things that we dealt with, a lot of what we used for was that escape from who we were. Yeah. And I, we've both reached a point in our lives where, no, I'm happy with who I am. Yeah. Like to, to have somebody be like, oh, you know, it's Friday. You don't have anything going on. You know, you can just kick back. Like, no, I can't. Because if I do that, what happens if all of a sudden my daughter falls down and she gets stitches? Then do I just put it on my, my uh, significant other to say, hey, can you take her to the ER? Because I mean, we could both go, but I'm kind of stoned right now. And uh, yeah, they, or I do go. And then I'm trying to be like, just act normal, just act normal, just act normal. Like, no, I need to be ready at all times to, to deal with present. anything. I need to be present. Yeah. And by doing that, I can't be present. Now, again, this isn't a slight on anybody that does things. Yeah. I can't do it because I am definitely not present in the I, way that I need to be. One of the things that I learned that I have to use in uh, treatment Addicted to escaping the negative self-image that childhood trauma brings me. Once again, I don't like to play the victim. And when I say that, I want to be very clear that I'm not blaming anything that happened to me as a child or anybody that did anything to me as a child for why I did what I did. But there is a natural cause and effect that I recognize that for the first 36 years of my life, I hated who I was. And I never understood why. But the fact is, the things that happened to me as a child convinced me that there was something wrong with me. And not to go too far into psychology, but it's pretty well known now amongst the, uh, the addiction community that a child can't process traumatic events as, hey, mom and dad really just aren't that great a parent. And, I'm, and my mom was a wonderful parent, and my dad for certain periods of my life was a good parent. But we, we can't process, hey... This bad thing happened to me, but that doesn't make me bad. When bad things happen as a child, you just assume that it's your own fault. And growing up, I just uh, I hated who I was. I hated being overweight. I hated being abused. Uh, I hated uh, all kinds of, there's so many things. And I grew up, and, and you know what? Even deep down inside, like, I knew that I could be humorous. I knew that I was popular amongst other people. I knew that I was relatively intelligent, that I could figure things out. I knew I could walk into a room and work a crowd of people. And I would have fleeting moments where I was like, hey, I'm the man. And, and of course, I would overcompensate because because like that ego is really just overcompensating for feeling inadequate. And I would have these fleeting moments where I was like, yeah, I'm the shit. But deep down inside, after those fleeting moments, I went back to, to I'm worthless. You know, uh, the counselor drew a zero on the dry erase board on one side and drew a one on the other side and then drew a line between them. And she said, in addiction, 
we either have to feel like we're number one or we're a big fat zero. And the truth is we're all somewhere in between there. We're all somewhere on the spectrum in between. And we have to become okay with that. Work towards becoming the one, but know you're never going to get there. Get Start getting yourself away from zero. And there's ways to do that. And that's the reason I don't want to smoke marijuana anymore <clears throat> is because I've come to terms with the fact that when I start, I don't have a control knob. I don't have a, an up and down switch. I will just go full bore for it. But if I remain abstinent and I continue to make wise choices, I, I, this is going to sound kind of funny because it's not worth a lot of money, but today I drive a BMW. I have the keys to my mom's Lexus in my pocket. I have cash in my pocket. I have my own credit card that I have money on and I don't owe money against. Um, I have the respect and the trust of family members that I never thought I would get it back from. And those are all directly related to me choosing not to use a chemical and to wake up every morning and ask myself, what are you doing today, Derek? Be intent, being intentional in the decisions that I make in my life that I wake up and I say, I'm going to make good choices today. I'm going to make choices that secure a future for myself and my loved ones. I'm going to make choices that uh, will benefit me in the future. I'm not going to live for today. Uh, as far as my goals, I am going to live for where I want to be, but I will be content with where I am today. It's been a little over five months since I've been released. I have not had a drag off a cigarette. I haven't had a sip off a beer. I haven't had a puff off a joint. I haven't had a sniff of a drug. Um, this is the first time that I've ever maintained any type of sobriety outside of incarceration. I'm so thankful for it. Um, but I recognize that it's every day waking up, recognizing there are choices in front of me, and asking myself, what are you doing? And again, it comes down to it's easy to take the path of least resistance. Always. It's easy to just be like, you know what? No, I'm going to just take the day off. And that is always there in the back of your mind saying, hey, you know what? You've done a lot. Why don't you just take a day off? But you choose, hey, I know that this is work. But look at, again, what you have. You got a BMW. I was there when you bought it. It was only $1,700, yeah. but it's a nice car. Yeah. I would pay $1,700 for that. I think anybody would. Uh You've got things because you got to pick you, up in a van. You got to pick up in a van. Three three wheelers or four wheelers, and a go kart. We've got a bit of a problem, folks. I uh, with motorcycles, Garrett with other motorized yes. and things. It runs um, on gas. But I would much rather have a problem buying uh, basket case motorcycles and working on them and getting them running than having the kind of problems that we had before uh. in life. Because honestly, with the things that we've got now, we are very mindful of what we put our money in. Yes. That BMW that you got, you could turn around tomorrow and you get all your money back. Uh, the the money that I put into any of the motorcycles that I bought, and again, I acknowledge I have a problem. Uh, <laughs> uh, I can turn around and sell them and I'll get that money back. I don't have five Harleys that I paid full price for. I'm not against Harleys. I'm not against any type of bike. I will buy what I can afford. Maybe sometimes I shouldn't, uh, but... At any point, if I needed to all of a sudden be like, hey, I need money, I can turn around and sell the motorcycle that I paid $100 for. I got running. I could sell it for 400 bucks instantly. And so the, we're very mindful of that yes. in our choices also, now. Also, though, that in the past, what we invested our money in has been taken, to us, taken from us in the blink of an eye. Nobody can take what we're going to do. 
Yes. The fact is, is that everything that I own now is are the things that I have the right to own and that nobody can take away from me. But in the past, uh, even when I was successful and I had money in my pocket and I had and I had all the things, they could all be snatched away from me the moment I was caught doing something wrong. There was no stability. There was no future. Now there is stability in the future. The difference between collecting motorcycles and collecting that is that the motorcycles last. Yeah. And again, not against the law. Yeah. There's no <laughs> law that says, hey, this guy just bought his sixth motorcycle. Oh. Go pick him up. Yeah. It's totally he, yeah. That's the truth. Is that, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and pray to me, and I'll listen to you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I used to just kind of be some like nice words on a plaque in my mom's living room. On a plaque or on a post-it note? Or, uh, 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 po- yeah, she yeah. used to have... Yeah, she used to put scriptures on post-it notes and put them all over the cabinets. I remember I'd sit Not on, just the cabinets. The they were all over the house. <laughs> I'd sit down on the cabinets like a crap and John 3.16 would be staring me in the eye from the wall there. Um, but the fact is, is that that takes on a whole new meaning when you actually do have hope. The the main difference between me now and me five years ago is hope. It's hope. It's it's recognizing that I don't ever have to go back to prison. I can. Misery is always an option, but I am no longer a slave to addiction. I'm no longer a slave to my old thought patterns. I was in bondage. I can remember thinking that there's something inherently wrong with me and that I will never be normal and I will never be successful, that my life will be a series of wild partying, dealing drugs, and stealing until I'm caught and then a timeout in prison until they finally catch me for a big enough charge that they'll lay me down until I'm old and that'll be my retirement. And it's a sad, sad, pathetic way to view it. The prison is full of guys that are doing life on the installment plan. And they're comfortable with it. And uh, I'm just so thankful that this time when I was in there, a light came on. And God reached out and spoke to me. And I, and I suddenly, and, I, and one day I woke up and said, when did I decide this is as good as I could do? When did I give up on my childhood dreams? When did I... When did I decide that I wasn't worth more than a bag of drugs? And uh, I just, God God made it obvious in my mind, I don't want to do this anymore. And from that day, I started making different choices. Volunteered to go to treatment, went to treatment, put 100% into it. Gave my life over to God and told him that I would do things as he saw fit. And just started looking for him to lead me. Got out, chose to get around people that I knew had been sober for a period of time and were doing things in the same way that I wanted to do things. And in five months' time, uh, I'm into uncharted territory, and it feels great. And I'm glad you shared that because, again, it ties back to the what are you doing. It was you finally coming to that realization of what am I doing? Yeah. What am I doing? Because trust me, oh, I tried and I tried and I tried to be like, I'm going to try to talk to Garrett rationally and explain (laughs) to him. And then that wasn't working. Then I was like, you know what? I'm going to try being a little mean. What was it that you said I posted or I sent you a message of? He said, well, it looks like you're going to continue to be an idiot. 
But uh, do me one favor. When you get to prison, would you knit me a hat? Because you seem to have made everybody else. Well, when you get to prison, which you're obviously going to do because of the decisions you're making, would you knit me a hat? Because you've made everybody else one. And I remember the girl that I was with at the time laughed. And she was like, hey, check out what your friend wrote you. And I remember reading it and being like, yeah, that don't surprise me. Yeah. So yeah. I, I tried that route. I tried being mean. Didn't I post something like, hold my dignity. I'm about to do oh, some, something shady. Yeah, I'm about to do some shady shit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, none of that worked. So it took you finally realizing. It wasn't that, oh, you know what? Some external force needs to happen. Somebody needs to say this magic phrase yeah. and all of a sudden it'll click in your head. No, you needed to click that own that's right. thing in your head that's, to make you realize, yeah, what are you doing? That's why I'm so hesitant when people are like, oh, man, you're doing good. Can you talk to my nephew? Because he's on the road that you were on. And I do. I make the effort because I believe I'm called. God tells me that I'm responsible for the effort, not the outcome. He's responsible for the outcome. I'm responsible to be diligent in my effort. And what I find is I often want to tell the person. I don't. I say it as politely as I can, but the truth is there is no magic bullet. There's no magic phrase. You can go back, and when I look at the age 24, when I went to prison the first time, Jesus himself met me in a jail cell and told me he loved me, and I still went back to prison seven times. Because the fact is, I had to be done. It Only I could make the decision that this is enough. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of my life. I'm sick of... I'm sick of my lack of hope, lack of dignity, lack of a future, lack of everything. I'm done. And the moment that I was done, nobody could talk me back into it. But until the moment I was done, nobody could talk me out of it. And the fact is, is that I don't want to waste a whole bunch of my time trying to tell a 24-year-old kid that still spells sin as relief that, that, this, is, that this isn't the way to go. Because I'm, I'm wasting my time. I can pray till I'm blue in the face. He will wear me out. And the moment I'm not there, he'll run back to what is, what is uh, uh, comfortable. So I would rather spend my energy getting behind people that I can tell are sick of it like I am. That, that I'd rather be a, a, a help and expend my energy Helping somebody that I truly believe has started to get it and is and is on the path and I can and 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 I can supercharge that God could use me to help. But I will always be faithful to reach out because you never know when it, you might be that moment and you might say that clarion thing that causes that moment when somebody says I'm Well, sorry. it's like you said, it's not your job to make that change for them. Yeah. Right? But you can talk to them, and by talking to them, if you can see that they're actually willing to take a look at themselves, to ask themselves, what are, what you, are you doing? doing? What are you doing? If they're not, if you try and put that effort out there and they just keep saying like, yeah, well, blah, 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 this, yeah, blah, 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 excuse, 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 yes. and they're not at all looking at how are you handling? So blah, 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 you said this situation occurred. What are you doing about that? Yes. Well, I'm not – yeah, I, I'm just looking at the things that's happening here and the thing that's happening there and the thing that's – but what are you doing about those things that are happening in your that's life? Right. If you can see that they're willing to start looking at that, then yeah, you can invest more in it. But you also have your own life to live. 
So I don't want anyone listening to this to think like that we're sitting on some high horse being like, hey, yeah. look at these two guys that are sober. I'm on uh, parole. That, I'm uh, on parole. <laughs> yeah, I uh, bet you dollars to donuts. I am a worse person than anyone that could possibly be listening to this. Some of the things that I've done in my life. So I'm no way trying to come across as judgmental being like, yeah, what are you doing? You need to get your shit together. Like, look at yourself. Ask yourself, what are you doing for your own good? Yeah. Don't do it because somebody's telling you to do it. Do it for yourself. What are you doing will always sound like an accusation to someone who is not making this point to you. What are you doing will always sound negative to somebody who is not living the life you want to live. But what are you doing is a clarion call, a personal responsibility, and it's an encouragement to people who want change and are willing to do whatever it takes to make change. You know what? I just noticed that the clock here shows we've been talking for about 57 minutes and the numbers turned from white to red so maybe that means we're running out of time yeah. I, don't, I don't know if there's a time limit on it but i think that the way that you just kind of wrap that up is a perfect way to end this our very first hopefully of many yes. podcasts again the name of our podcast what wade the elephant what are you doing <laughs> the elephant in the room shortened to wade the elephant bear with us we don't really know what we're doing at all. Everything that we just said could just go off into the ether for nobody to hear. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. We'll keep putting it out. All right. Have a good night yes. or day or whenever you're listening to this. Yes. See, I told you we don't know what we're doing. <laughs>